0: So our New Testament reading this morning will be from Second John. We'll be continuing to look at John's epistles. And we'll read the whole of Second John today. Should pay careful attention to verses 7 and 8, which is really the, the center and purpose of the letter. But we'll be looking at the first six verses this morning. Lord willing, we'll look at the rest next week. But the book of Second John, let us read the word of the Lord. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is a commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such as one, one is a deceiver and the Antichrist, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. And the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this text this day, pray, Lord, that you would encourage us in receiving the things that are here. Open our hearts to receive them, our minds to understand them. And bless us, Lord, with diligence, with care, and with love for you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a very short letter. John's second and third letters are very, very short and very succinct, but they have quite a lot packed into them. And here, as I mentioned The central part we'll get to next week, so we won't really talk about that. But the theme being that there are many deceivers going out and that the believers are really in danger of losing their reward if they follow them. But here, first, I want to focus primarily on verses 4 through 6. And they're the introductory remarks before he comes to the main problem. Now, as we look at this, this verse 4, Walking in the truth as commanded. We need to make a quick note of who he's talking to and who he's talking about. Now you may note, John here is addressing that some of, the chil- some of your children are walking in the truth. Who is the sum of your children? Well, it goes back to the elect lady and her children. Who's the elect lady and who are the children? The elect lady, is that a specific person? The second letter is addressed to Gaius, or the third letter, rather, is addressed to Gaius, a person. Is this addressed to a person whom he's left anonymous? Or some people actually think the elect lady uh, is actually a proper name. Seems improbable, but they think so. Or is he leaving her anonymous because she's a woman and could face more persecution and he isn't naming her? Or is it as others consider it to be a personification of the church, a particular church in mind that he's writing to, and he's referring to the church as the elect lady? And then that brings up the question, then, well, who are the children? Are they a particular woman's biological children, or are they the members of the church? And while it's an interesting debate, the amount of information we have is rather scarce, and Honestly, it doesn't impact our understanding and interpretation of the of the meaning of the text, so i 'm going to leave that really aside. Uh, Good men on both sides of that argument. Some have tried to turn that whom I love in the truth into a romantic meaning and make it a person, but that's really hard to imagine because when John talks about the truth, it's usually more in the context of Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And if we look at this passage, this verse in particular, verse 4, it's followed by a claim, well, verse 1, it's followed by the claim that not only I love them, but all who know the truth love them, love her. And because of the truth that abides in us, and that truth that abides in us is, of course, the knowledge of the word through the Holy Spirit. And given that, I think we're talking about not romantic love, but love in God as a dear sister in Christ. So I don't think we need to give that much consideration. He loves her as either a church, if it's a personification of the church, or as he loves every believer who's faithful to God, as we all should love, all the, as everyone should love a believer. Uh, the next question that comes up, though, is what does he mean by walking in the truth? Does he mean they're professing as believers? That's how some have taken it that this is writing to a woman and, oh, it's nice that some of your children are believers. Or is it more more specific that they're showing the fruits of salvation? They're passing the test that John has written about in First John. Uh, given that John starts off his first letter warning us that if we have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. And we also know that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. First John two 6. I I'd understand this walking in the truth to mean walking as Jesus walked, walking according to the commandments, producing fruit, showing evidence, passing the tests. As he says here in verse 4 and in verse 5, walking according to the commandments the Father has given us. And so I think he's saying it's nice to see that some of your children, some members of the church or some of your your particular children, are living a life demonstrating their Christian faith. And I think that's in context not just with verse 4, verse 5, but also with verse 8 in particular, talking about having, losing what they've worked for. If they're showing evidence of their faith, then they're doing what's right. They're earning that reward that God has promised. And they have great hope, and there's reason for the joy that he talks about, rejoicing that he sees them Walking in faith. It says here, walking as commanded, just as we are commanded by the Father. Walking in the truth is really that great commandment of God. Pontius Pilate, we like to joke, said, what is truth? We've just read Jesus says thy word is truth. John 17, 17. In the Old Testament, God said, You shall be careful to follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 18.4 Nothing about that command has changed in the New Testament. In fact, John assures us, by this you'll know that you have come to know him, if you keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2.3-4 and so walking according to his rules, walking according to his commandments is the evidence that shows we belong to God and that God is in us and we are in Christ. And that is in keeping with the Old Testament command that you must keep the commandments. It's not an optional thing. We are not walking in the truth as the Father commands us if we are not walking according to the commandments found in his word. You know, rightly understood, rightly interpreted by his word, of course. All of sinful man's dreams of binding God to save them while they live in their sin and rebellion against him are completely demolished by Scripture, by His Word, by the command, by the words of Jesus, by the words of John here in first John and Second John, because we must be in submission to God to belong to Him. John says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. one who keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 6-8. As we've seen, obedience is not and never was optional in the Christian life. You remember the very first commandment God gave man. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2:15 through 17, and what happened? He ate, and what happened? To Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I commanded you, do not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles you shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Dust you are, and dust you shall return. He began to die physically, and certainly he died spiritually. And not only that, Genesis 3:17 through 19 but in verse 24, he drove the man out of the garden of Eden to the east, and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword to stop him from returning. Now, disobedience was a serious thing from the very beginning, from the first command he gave. God hasn't suddenly decided that disobedience is now acceptable as some want it to be. Uh, we have forgiveness of sins in Christ, but we still have the obligation to perfect obedience to God's revealed will. Remember, all the suffering Israel Endured throughout its whole history, came upon the nation as a consequence for breaking the righteous commandments of God. Now, in our passage today, thankfully, John is saying he sees some of them are indeed walking in the truth. How did he see it? Well, maybe he visited them or maybe he's received reports from them. It brings him great joy. And in fact, he hopes to then see them face to face. Verse 12. So that he can discuss the matters that he's writing them about in more detail and encourage them personally. You now, as a pastor, it's one thing for you to write a letter or write a book; it's another thing for you to be there in person and, you know, preach the word and counsel people one on one. And that's what he wants to do. But he's greatly rejoicing to find some of their children, some of the children, walking in the truth. You might ask, where does that joy come from? It starts really with remembering our own place. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. We were enemies, Romans 5.10. We were darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us due to our hardness of heart, Ephesians 4.18. That's where we were. We were under God's wrath and curse, both in this life and the life to come. But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Is that not a matter of great rejoicing personally? And while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, now that we have been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? More than that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have received reconciliation Romans five, ten and eleven. And as John has written here in first John or back in first John, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called. Children of God, and so we are. First John three one. Now this great unmerited gift we have received personally, even though we were deserved his wrath and curse, both in this life and the life to come, this gift makes it worthy of our rejoicing in what we have received. But more than that, isn't it great to share joy with those who have received the same gift? We have something with our brother and sister in Christ, that we we have this unimaginable, unexpressible joy in salvation that only another Christian can share with us. And when we share that together, we have that inexpressible joy multiplied, really, by being able to share it together with those who believe. And I think that's a part of what John is expressing here, that... He rejoices in seeing the fruit of their salvation in their lives, knowing then that they know what he knows, that they share what he shares. But more than that, as a pastor, you know nothing is of greater joy to him than to see the people he ministers to growing and maturing in the faith, and so he has that also uh, making his joy even greater than it might be otherwise, especially as he's now quite an elderly man. We, We believe this letter was written in the early 90s AD, which would make him potentially in his late 80s at the very least. And so he's an older man and a minister, and he's survived several rounds of deadly persecution of the Christian church Um, where Peter was martyred, Paul was martyred, James has been martyred, uh, many Christians have been martyred, churches have been slaughtered. He's been through it all, and he's still there. And in this letter, he writes about many deceivers having gone out into the world. He writes in his first letter that he's writing these things about those who are trying to deceive them. And so when he sees them walking in the faith... Walking in the truth, in spite of all the attacks, his joy is probably even greater. That we are making a difference in the lives of God's people by persevering, by calling them in the truth, by saying some things that are pretty hard. that will get you driven out of some churches today if you read this, passage, this next week's passage. But it has to be done. Because that's his purpose, to see them producing fruit, to see them earning their reward, to see them ready and unashamed when Christ returns. So, having rejoiced in them and with them, he goes on to encourage them in the thing which is very needful for them. In times of trial, in times of persecution, Loving one another in the truth is very important and very difficult. But that's what he calls them to do. True love is really only possible if it's love in accordance with the truth. And men like to imagine what love is, but God tells us what true love really is. We've spoken of the link before between the scriptures and the truth. <coughs> Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. You cannot have truth apart from the word. If it contradicts the word of God, it's not truth. Now, this is true not just of all commands, but of the specific command to love one another. There's no way to love one another apart from the way commanded in the scriptures to love one another. It must be love according to what God has commanded and what He has commanded from the beginning not just picking a few things here and there in the new testament but in the whole of the bible the way he commands it in all of it sinful man really doesn't want to hear what god's word says about love paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are folly to him not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned first corinthians 2:14 we know that all Scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And so the Scripture is the spiritual things that they cannot understand. So what Scripture teaches us concerning love in particular is going to be considered foolishness by the world. And we need to understand that. If God says, this is how you love your brother rightly, the world is going to say that's foolishness. Because that's a spiritual thing that God is teaching and they will not understand it. They will not receive it. They won't be able to receive it. In fact, as Paul says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18 They not only will look at the truth of God's word and how we should be loving each other correctly, They will try to suppress it. They will hate it. They will reject it. They will suppress it. The world will listen to Hollywood's view. They will listen to psychologists' view. But they will not listen to the Bible's teaching, which is why John said, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, 1 John 4, 5, and 6. They aren't going to listen to these things, but we, the believers, must listen to them and not listen to what the world is going to teach, because they will be at odds. Now, that being said, the biblical view of love, particularly love of the brother, is not something new. It is the old commandment, the old commandment to love one another which you have had from the beginning. It's in the moral law. Remember, Jesus summarized the moral law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets by which he means the Old Testament teaching. All of it is built on that; those two concepts. Oh, both of those quote the Old Testament, and the second one, love your neighbors yourself, comes from Leviticus 19.18, the end of it. I want to read verses 17 and 18 to put it in context. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but shall reason frankly, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbors yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19:17 and 18. Yeah, that is a summary, really, of the second table of the Ten Commandments. The way man is to love his brother. Uh, If we think of those commandments, numbers 5 through 10, that is a summary of what love for your brother looks like. Love your brother as yourself can be seen in those. Now, I think we should first note, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And note the implication there. If you break the commandments of God, you're not loving God but hating him. All sin is sin against God. What we're looking at right now is sin against man and hatred for man. So I'm I'm leaving aside for a moment that it is also hatred against God and sin against God. But if we look at those commandments, we can see they really are about how we love our brother. It's obvious with murder, right? Number six, you shall not murder. Murder, if you murder your brother, you hate him. Uh, if you hate them in your heart, it's you're guilty of murder, Jesus says. So, same difference. Uh, easy to understand, that one. But steal, you shall not steal, number eight. That's also fairly easy. If somebody takes what you've worked hard for, and they steal it so that they don't have to work, you can understand that they're not being kind to you, they're not loving you, they're hating you. It's pretty obvious. Uh, false witness, number nine. Somebody lies about you or lies to you in order to deceive you or to get you in trouble. It's pretty obvious they're doing that out of hatred to cause trouble for you. Or to, you know, even if they're doing it only for their own benefit, it's hateful, hateful towards you. So it's pretty easy. Number five, honor your parents. And by implication, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except those from God. For those that exist have been instituted by God, Romans 13.1. We understand that honor your parents applies to all relationships where you have authority over you. Uh, It's a little harder because we have such a tendency to break that one and want to break that one. But if you're the one who's in authority and somebody's refusing to obey you or honor you or trying to dishonor you, it's pretty obvious that they're hating you or despising you. Right? We, we immediately know that. Uh, and so this, again, is how do you love somebody if they're in authority over you? By honoring them, by submitting to them. Coveting. That one might be a little harder for some people. I'd say, well, coveting, what's the harm? It's a victimless sin, right? It's all in my heart. They don't even know. Uh, leaving aside the fact that it offends God as a sin, we're talking about man to man here. Uh, it's a victimless sin, right? Well, wrong. Isn't coveting something that is in your heart? Didn't Jesus say, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks, Matthew 12:34)? If you have coveting in your heart towards somebody, isn't your attitude towards that person who's the target of your coveting going to be damaged? Aren't you going to be less loving to the person you're coveting? In fact, in counseling, this is one of the big problems people have. They're envious. We call it envy sometimes instead of coveting. They envy the success of somebody. They envy the happiness of somebody. And that makes their relationship with that person very bitter. Or they envy the ease that person has. Oh, I have all this trouble in my life, and they don't seem to, you know, they don't get in, they did the same thing and they have no problem. You know, what's the first thing the kids did? Kids say when you rebuke one of them, well, you know, so and so did it too. Envy, covetousness, the same concept. If we harbor that in our heart, that is hurting them. Because that's changing our attitude towards them, our relationship towards them. And we are then not loving them as we should. And so if we want to love them, we cannot have covetousness or envy towards them in our heart. And usually that's what we have in counseling. One of the things we have to work on is helping the person see that what they think is a you know, a, a, a sin that has no victim has a victim. And that it's really that their sin is the cause of part of their problem with their relationship and that they need to fix that. Now, you may have noticed I left one of them out. We'll come to that one now. Number seven, adultery. And by implication, then, all sexual sin, all thoughts and deeds outside of a biblically lawful marriage relationship that would include, of course, everything. Uh, Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart, Matthew 5:28. He's kind of setting the interpretation of that commandment, really all the commandments, that it goes beyond that. People today like to argue that if the parties involved are okay with it, then it's okay, that it's a victimless sin, that it's not a problem particularly for pornography. That's a very common argument. All of the comments I said about covetousness would apply here as well. It's not a victimless crime. Any area, any sin in this area harms really the right relationship that should exist. That marriage relationship that should be there is going to be harmed by the heart attitude Not being right. Uh, Even if the person is single, it prevents then the relationship from becoming what it should. And the relationship that should exist between people who are not married will be different because of the sin than what it should be. It won't be the proper loving relationship of a brother, sister in Christ, or of, you know, co-workers or of neighbors or whatever it is. It will be affected and harmed and it will not be loving. That right relationship is important before God, and it's representative of Christ's love for the church, and so it's quite a significant relationship. To have that corrupted is very damaging to the people involved, and to not be able to establish that perfectly because of the sin makes it very unloving thing and very hurtful. So you know, how do we love our brother as ourself? How do we show biblical love towards each other? The Ten Commandments really show us the the foundation of what real love should look like for each other. And the sins men rejoice in in our our society today: greed and idolatry and immorality. And hatred and bitterness, all of those things damage and ruin true love and supplant it with what they think is love, which is not love at all. Basically, we need to love one another as God has commanded in his word, which is truth. Not according to the worthless ways of a sinful and corrupt and worldly society. Not according to the godless ways of... The wisdom of this age, but according to the way God has said. And we need to judge our love according to Scripture, according to the Ten Commandments, according to what God has written. Now, man's heart is, sinful man's heart is really no different than it was in Noah's generation. And remember what the Lord said then. He saw the wickedness of man's heart was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6.5. <clears throat> that's why love must be defined rightly. And that's where he goes next in verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is his commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. It's an unchanging definition of love throughout all of history. It needs to be the same. Now, we need to unpack this a little bit. It it harkens back to what John said in 1 John. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We talked about that quite a bit in John, 1 John 5.3. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, John 14.21. And if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14.15. This is the existing commandment that John was talking about in verse 5. But there's also a sense in which we saw that it was new when we were going through 1 John. and He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment, one that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment I am writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. 1 John 2, 7 and 8. Remember what we said was new about it? I realize this is several months ago. Maybe that's a little dim in our minds. A new commandment I give you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Well, that's already been, that's the old commandment. Here's the new part. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's what's new. The revelation of how he loved us during his incarnation is what's new. How did he love us? Um, By sacrificing himself for our sanctification. By this, all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, 34, and 35. So what is this new part? The new part is his sacrificial love, sanctify a people for himself now this is in part our calling You remember Paul's instructions husband love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without slot or wrinkle or any such thing That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he loves them what his wife loves himself. Now, obviously, we can't die for, a husband cannot die for the sins of his wife. That's not what it's saying. And we can't die for our brother's sins because Jesus has paid it all. There's nothing for us to die for. What he's calling for us, though, is to be instruments of sanctification in the life of our wife. And I think what Jesus is calling us for is to love our brother as he has loved us, to be instruments of sanctification, the love lives of our brother and sister in Christ. And we read that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how may we stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. We must meet together, be part of each other, be part of each other's lives, both in church and outside of church, to, to, to stir each other up to good works, to stir each other up to faith and in Christ, to be part of each other's mutual sanctification, that whole process. That's what he's calling us to do in our love for each other. Not the worldly romantic love and not the worldly physical love, but the spiritual love of wanting to see that rejoicing that we were talking about earlier and seeing somebody walking nearer to God, seeing somebody producing greater fruit, seeing them closer and closer to God, seeing in them the image of God more clearly and that we have mutual rejoicing in each other as we grow closer and closer to the perfections of Christ. Now, our obligation doesn't end simply with trying to stir each other up. Remember, John said, If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not the leading to death, he should ask, and God will give him life. Uh, John 5.16 you know, we should certainly be praying for each other in our problems, and our sins. And not just praying also, but encouraging, helping them. Uh, if necessary, admonishing, rebuking, correcting, as James commands us to do. If any among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back the sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins, James five nineteen and 20. We have that obligation of love one for another, to be trying to grow together to Christ, to grow together to heaven, waiting for the day, longing for it, and looking not just to see ourselves become more holy and more perfect and more glorifying to God, but to see our brothers and sisters also growing to Christ together. He starts this little section, verses 4 and 5, 4 to 6, really, wrapping verse 5 up with the reminder to walk according to the commandments. You see, it's in verse 4 and it's in verse 6, wrapping around verse 5. And truly, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. You know, we should have that attitude towards the commandments because they are really the core of what our Christian life should be about. They are the things that guide us to live the life that Christ wants, to live the life that is like Christ, that guide us to be transformed into the image of Christ more and more day by day. Now, all of this message today, verses 4 through 6, really is tied into verse 7 and 8, which we will, Lord willing, consider next week. It's a needful reminder. Loving God and loving our brothers ourselves in the truth It's meaningfully put before the next section because biblical love can fall and can fail under fire. Our next verses. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is a deceiver in the Antichrist. In the scary verse, watch yourselves, verse 8, that you do not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. And Jesus warned us that they will deliver us up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my sake. And then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and leave many, lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. And the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Matthew 24, 9 through 14. You know, some will stop loving God and embrace worldly ways. You know, always speaking and preaching and teaching and considering acceptable and palatable things for the world and thus give up their love to God. Others will stop loving the brothers and their love will grow cold because of all their struggles. Now he's calling here first to biblical love and this precedes the warning about the deceivers because he doesn't want them to lose what they have worked for. And he's calling them first and foremost, strengthen the love for God and the love for each other. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that in the chaos and the darkness and the evil of this present age, it is at times difficult to love rightly. To love you carries a price of being hated by the world. The love of our brothers carries the trials that comes with it. But we pray, Lord, that as we see that there is a way to love that you have defined, that there is a reward for love, being transformed into the image of your Son, being guaranteed a place in heaven and a reward to go with it. We pray that you would help us more and more to give up the ways of the world, to give up accommodating the world. And to set our hearts and our mind on heaven and the things above. And to help help us, Lord, then, to love our brother as ourself. And to love you with all of our heart and with all of our strength and with all of our mind and with all of our soul. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.